0: Greetings and salutations, board game fans. The Dice Pirates are back. We've come back from our extended June break. We're excited to share some really exciting episodes with you, and this time we're actually going to be talking about, really, the history of hobby tabletop gaming, and we're going to take a laser focus onto the renaissance of board games, as it were. I, as always, am your Captain Ian, joined by the ever stalwart Matt. And our long-time guest, Aaron. How you guys doing?
1: I'm doing great. Uh, it's so appropriate for me to be talking about the Renaissance board games because I'm a Renaissance man. Uh, do people call me that? I'm known as that.
0: You would agree with that, right,
1: Ian? Yeah. Renaissance
0: man. I think you do call yourself that. Um, uh, you know, I would I mean, like you th- to spell Renaissance first. It starts with an R and it ends with an naissance
2: There's there's some there's some some passing resemblance to you know classical depictions of what people looked like in renaissance times so sure
1: many people say i look like that anatomical drawing of a man that leonardo da vinci did one
2: time yeah i didn't want to ask about the the extra arms and legs because it felt rude i was hoping you'd bring it up
0: i ate paint chips when i was a kid the 80s were weird well before we disturb everybody with that terrible mental image we are of course going to move off to our soapbox topic so starting off matt do you have anything for us today
1: yeah, I do, actually. Uh, I want to talk about a new game uh, that I've been playing that's new to me, but not all that new. A kind of a... Uh, I don't know if it's a classic game, but a, a really well-known one, and that is uh, Surro, The cool uh, little game of tile-laying and zen-like paths that you make as you move your little dragonstone uh, down. It's a wonderful little game. I got it for Father's Day. It had sort of been on my radar as, like one of these uh, modern classics that you should uh, probably own in your collection. And it just looks so lovely. You know, I've gotten to the point, too, where now I'm very attracted to any game that just looks classy and cool to have. And I've uh, I've wanted Sura for a while, so I was really thrilled to get it. And I wanted to talk about it, uh, one, because it's really good. And two, I feel like there's something to be said for uh, this niche of, like, really simple games that play fast. We just don't have enough of those games are getting so big and so complex and it was really refreshing to sit down to open up the Soro box read the instructions in about 10 minutes really knew how to play it but just wanted to watch rodney do it on how it played because it's just you know are you even getting a new game anymore if, you, if rodney doesn't teach you so we watched rodney teach us how to play it completely superfluously because it was like yeah yeah i get it rodney you move the rock very it's awesome and then, uh, you know, we played our first game of Surrow, and it was a blast, and the whole thing took like a half hour. I mean, it was amazing. It's a, it's a wonderful little game. Uh, if you've never played it, uh, it's a simple game of you lay a tile down that has multiple little lines on it that represent a path, and you slide your stone down one path. And on your next turn, you're going to add extend your path, and the goal is to stay on the board as long as possible. If at any point you don't have any other options other than to place a tile that would take you off the board you lose. Where it gets dicey is if other players play a tile that would force your stone to move, they could uh, send you on a path you didn't want to go down or even send you off the board and eliminate you. Uh, Suro is basically uh, five or seven turns of nothing happening and then about three turns of mass chaos every time we play it. just It kind of starts out very slow you're just kind of like, oh, this is very chill. This is very zen. Look, I made a little curve. It's so peaceful. And then you quickly realize your options are narrowing and the other players are moving into your space and it just becomes sweaty and chaotic and then it's over. And it doesn't outstay its welcome.
0: It's such a delightful little game. Like you said, Like it really is. It, it, it's so similar to those games you used to play as a kid, like on the back of cereal boxes, where you would try to find the one path that would lead to the correct answer. Because, yeah, you're, like, you have these interlocking paths you have all this going on and it's such a fast game like you said there's there's something to be said about these simple games you can teach it in less than five minutes because it could not be easier to understand all you do is put a tile down you follow the path and you you can't really go wrong explaining the game and when it plays in 10 minutes i mean like you said we, we need more of that and i just i'm so happy that you picked this game up because this is a game that i have always really enjoyed playing I think in some ways maybe the size of the box is something that can put people off because the box might be a little bit too big for the components inside, and maybe people get the wrong idea of what it entails. But anybody who is willing to give it a shot I think is going to love this. But uh, Aaron, have you also played this game? What do you think?
2: I have. uh, I've I've played Sorrow a bunch. I I actually picked it up for my, my VR headset because they released it for VR headsets for reasons unknown to me abstracts really hold a a special place in my heart as much as i love a big crunchy box full of miniatures and cards and separate rule books and all that good stuff there is really something wonderful about a game that is like you said matt you you open it up the rules is on a single piece of paper that you don't even have to flip over and you're into it a game that i play with my son pretty regularly is santorini which is a uh, very similar. It's it's it, it could be abstracted to just, you know, shapes and tiles. Uh, it's a very simple game mechanically, but I think where it shines along with Sorrow is there's so much decision space still within that, that very limited amount of I, I don't wanna say limited amount of game, but you know, there's 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 not a whole lot that's happening, but there's still hugely impactful decisions that you won't really know the ramifications of until two or three or four turns from now. Um, oh, yeah. Especially with with Suro, because you can get five or six people playing at the same time, and that just devolves into absolute chaos.
1: Yeah, it's very different at all the different player counts. Uh, I don't want to spend too long talking about Suro because we got a big episode ahead, but it's uh, one of these games that so far has been really fun at every player number i've played it with just two to four and it plays up to eight i'd be fascinated to play it at like those high numbers i feel like it would be absolute chaos two players is a strange uh, zen like thing because you actually don't interact with each other very much and that becomes you just trying to create the perfect path and not back box yourself in a corner it's like playing the old like snake game where you don't want to like double back on yourself you're just trying to keep moving. And then, then you'll eventually potentially collide with the other player. Three players, it gets a little more tense, a little more interaction. Then four is very optimal because it's like very quickly the four players are like coming toward the middle of the board and you got to start making those, making choices. But yeah, I mean, I just think it's a great game. It's worth picking up. It's uh, very lovely components. The player pieces are these like kind of like stones that have a, that, that they sort of look like little stones with a dragon carved on them. The whole aesthetic of the board with uh, Eastern-inspired art and mythology is uh, very lovely. Highly recommended, but really just want to see more designers playing around with that like 10 to 15 minute game time. Because that's a a wonderful addition to a game night. Something you can open up with or close out the night with a palette cleanser. I think everybody needs a few games like that uh, in the collection that kind of just are breezy, light, uh, an aperitif of a game.
0: We are going to go ahead and move on to our next topic. I actually have something that I want to talk about, and Matt, I know you've been reading a bit about this as well, but I'd like to talk about something that happened um, a little bit ago, actually about a month ago at this point, where David Turtsey, the designer of a lot of games that you may know and love, uh, Anachrony being probably one of the most popular, and uh, Norley lovers were designing a game for the upcoming Kickstarter of Prison Architect, which, if you may not know, Prison Architect was a sim game in the vein of a city-building game like SimCity, and it was based around creating a prison and and building a, a very effective and profitable prison. And that was an indie game that was released in the 2000s. It was quite some time ago. And so there was a Kickstarter where they were creating a board game version of that. On May 26th, uh, David Tertze actually came out with a a post on BoardGameGeek where he explained that both he and uh, Nora Lee Lubbers, they were taking themselves off of the game. They were asking that their names be removed and that they would no longer be associated with the game at all. And the reasons that he put behind this, to sum up sort of the statements that he was making, there were a lot of issues that people had with the game. Obviously, you know, especially in America specifically, there are a lot of issues with the prison system, the way that we approach incarceration. Um, For-profit prisons are a huge problem, and this game is something that uses that as a motif. And from the sounds of it, it didn't really deal with that in a way that a lot of people would consider respectful, or really handling its material in a sensitive manner. And so... After a significant amount of time talking and interacting with various people and having conversations, they realized that it's something that they messed up with. They should not have proceeded with that. And if they had done it, they should have done it in a different way. And so they made the decision after having designed the game and it went to Kickstarter, they realized that they did not want to be associated with this game. There's more to unpack here, but I want to throw this to you, Matt, and just kind of get your thoughts on this before we really delve into it. You know, it's such an odd thing
1: to try to make a board game out of uh, or a video game. I guess it's, uh, you know, it's on Steam now as a video game. But this is such an odd concept uh, to try to do uh, as a game. Uh, I think that people maybe who don't live in the U.S. would be sort of like maybe shocked or confused by the idea of a for-profit prisons, But it's a highly controversial thing. And so the idea of like running in a management sim way a prison the way you would run like railroad tycoon or other type games where you're like doing these kind of abstracted and cartoony uh, representations of business but translating that into something that has such real world implications and social dynamics that are very complex is bizarre to me and even when you look at the art of this game i don't know that it originated in the video game and they carried it over to the board game but this south park-esque cartoony thing you can sort of tell right away that like hey, this is these aren't going to be like sensitive nuanced portrayals of prisons and how they impact people and what are the social implications of the prison system and what are the societal and economic implications of it like none of that's going to be dealt with this is all being very abstracted treated in too silly and cartoony a way and it's not surprising to me that there was backlash about that and that these designers were sort of questioned whether or not they really wanted to be involved in it 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 just kind of goes back to a bigger discussion that we've had uh, several times on the show, which is that, you know, board games are growing up as a medium. More and more people are playing them. They're also looking at them with a more critical eye toward things like story and theme. You know, there was a time when you could just layer on almost any theme on a board game and nobody re- really cared. You know, when the original version of Five Tribes came out, they had slaves in the game that you could buy in the marketplace, which is bananas. Now, admittedly, that was changed. But, you know, games are growing up and you just can't do these abstractions of complex social issues like that and not expect people to ask tough questions of you. And if you don't have good answers for why you're doing what you're doing and how you're going to answer those things, you just don't need to be touching these highly charged themes.
0: I have to agree on that. And one of the things I want to point back to the post that Uh, david made on board game geek and i I highly recommend you to check this out and sort of get a feel for what he was saying here but one of the uh, i do want to quickly point out a quote that david did make in this article though where he says we shouldn't make this game because the daily reality that it is reminiscent of casually slips over and is making a lot of people uncomfortable angry and sad and if we persist we are excluding those people and would make us fail in our stated goal of including more and more people of the more and more diverse kind in our community of joy and cardboard." This is one of those things that we have talked about before in the study that game, should you shouldn't be pushing people away. Making something that actively will make people uncomfortable, unless you have a very, very clear idea of what you're doing with it and it's not something that you're just trying to do, I think is the wrong way to approach. It is interesting, within a board game specifically, you have win states and you have win conditions and you have some things that are better than others. And so, especially when you bring that into a situation where you're talking about prisons, well, I mean, very similar to the game, you're probably going to have, okay, well, some prisoners are more profitable than others. How can you cut down on maybe the amount of money you're spending? Things like that. It's it, trying to gamify something that can be as brutal and already in, in some ways gamified as prisons is, I think, a, a very um, difficult place to be. And I definitely applaud them for being willing to take a stand like that and, and pull themselves away from this game.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's worth noting that, you know, about a decade ago, we weren't having the same conversations that we're having today. But in 2012, you know, it, it's not that bad things weren't happening. We just weren't looking at them or addressing them in the way that we are now. We, they weren't a part of the conversation in the way that they are now. I think if Prison Architect, the video game, were to try and come out today, it would immediately be lambasted and fired out of a cannon because, like, nobody wants to touch that. That's gross. And I'm not saying that if you played the game and had fun that you're a bad person, because you're not. It's a game. Now. But it's interesting how quickly that conversation changed.
1: It's fascinating to think about a game that came out, what, like, a decade ago, but also, like, referring to that as like, well, that was a game of its era, the way you might talk about uh a movie like Blazing Saddles or something. You know what I mean? Like uh, ten years ago is like almost like that's like of its era. You know, things have changed, discourse has changed. I, I wanna make a point. I I I am sorta of like nervous to wade into this. I hadn't really like planned these remarks, but I'm gonna attempt because when we started talking about this, uh that you want you wanted to bring this up on the show, Ian, I was I was like I know the criticism people have. They're gonna like say so this is that, like, censorship thing. Like, you can't... Why can't I make a game about a prison, right? You know, like, why shouldn't I be able to do that if that's what I want to do? Why is this, like, culture trying to, like, put people in boxes? And see, there's really... I don't I don't buy into that. Uh, obviously, if you've listened to the show, you know I'm an advocate for questioning these themes and games. But here's my point. When you're making a game, like, what are you trying to accomplish? So with a game like Prison Architect, were they trying to make a game that simulated running a complex system... In an efficient way, a management game. If that's if that's if that's really what they want, they want to play around with management stuff, complex systems with lots of variables and weird events that can happen. Okay, why a prison? You could make that about anything. It could be a pie company. It could be uh, you know, it could be moving boats through the Suez Canal so as to not get them stuck. There's a lot more interesting themes. There's there's so many. There's a million potential themes that you could explore and do like a management game full of complex variables. Or if you wanted to make a game about a prison, though, if it's like I'm hell bent to tell to do a story game about a prison, what are you trying to say about prisons? What are you trying to explore? What's the viewpoint? Is it a game about being a prisoner? Is it a game about being a person in charge of people? What are the implications of that? And the thing is, I just don't think that they really thought through like what it meant to say like I want to do a game about a, a prison and then answered the questions of like why? What are the themes you want to explore? What are the implications of prisons what are the bigger ideas and you could say like well i wanted it to just be fun well they could have done this like they could have done like a sci-fi prison theme and put this on a space station and abstracted it and it would have been different you know space prison or supervillain prison or something but as soon as you ground it in the real world and you deal with a real topic like for-profit prisons that's just that's real you know and now you've got to take it more seriously than this and you've either got to like Explore a complex topic in a meaningful way, or just don't do that.
0: That's such a good point. I'm sure that at some point we will come back to this um, as we sort of develop our ideas and as we do kind of discuss more of the idea of games taking on very heavy topics. But I do want to move on, and I'm actually going to go ahead and surprise this on you two. I didn't put it on the list, but I think we could use something a little bit more lighthearted before we dive into our topic. It's no surprise that games can get very complicated, and sometimes reading a rule book can get really interesting. So not so much of a game, but just as a, a fun moment, I want to share with you guys just a couple segments from a few games where it, what I like to call like kind of the Cones of Dunshire moment. You know, if you've ever seen Parks and Rec, you may remember the scene <laughs> where Ben Wyatt creates the Cones of Dunshire, a board game needlessly intricate, incredibly complex, and makes no sense when you're listening to the rules. So I'm going to read a couple excerpts from a a few different games just to kind of just kind of throw you guys out there. I, I think this could be fun. The first is a passage from the game Here I Stand. If the Henry's marital status marker is on the ask for divorce space, the papacy may agree to grant the divorce to the English power. If such an agreement occurs, the English player moves the marker to the Anne Boleyn space, and rolls immediately on the pregnancy chart, as described in 21.3. The English player may roll again during the action phase of this turn if they want to play The Six Wives of Henry VIII. Did you just say to me, roll on the pregnancy chart?
1: (laughs) Is that a a phrase that you just said out loud to
2: me? We got to put it on the Anne Boleyn chart, I believe it was. (laughs) No, it's the Anne Boleyn space, and then roll
1: on the pregnancy chart. Excuse me.
0: Uh the um, yeah, no, it's uh, not something that I'm asking you to do, but something you will be asked to do multiple times during a game of Here I Stand. Uh, the oh. pregnancy chart is actually something you will refer to quite often.
1: What is on the pregnancy chart? I need to see the Here I Stand pregnancy chart. I'm in it.
0: here. The pregnancy chart. Uh, specifically relates to, I believe, whether or not the wife of Henry VIII will have a child, whether it will be male and sic- survive, or whether it will be male and sickly and die, or whether it's a female. Some- I think, I believe that's the gist of it. Um, <laughs>
1: I'm sorry, you rolled on sickly male, which was uh, also my original Hotmail
2: uh, address. sicklymail at hotmail.com. So I pulled up the, the Here I Stand pregnancy chart, and if you roll a five partial success a sickly boy is born though the blessed queen dies soon after birth
1: a sickly boy is born uh that's fantastic uh you know what i'm most excited about uh you bringing that game up is that our good buddy fellow dice pirate dennis uh recently bought that game and we're gonna play that uh me and he and i are already making plans to play that it's a epic game that simulates I don't know, the Reformation Wars or something. Uh, you know, this is a part of history that I don't know about. Apparently, uh, the religious people of Europe uh, had a huge war at some point in the Middle Ages. Uh, you know, yeah. it will be a learning experience for me. For me, I'm thrilled to roll in the pregnancy chart.
0: <laughs> oh, I can't wait to hear all about it. I do have one more for you guys. This is from Food Chain Magnet, the ketchup expansion. Houses without a garden will never desire sushi. Sushi cannot be used as a substitute for coffee.
1: <laughs> Sushi cannot be used as a substitute for
2: coffee. Well, clearly, you've never had breakfast at my house. hey <laughs> Like, the the words that you said and the order that you... Like, that was all English, but I don't know what that was.
0: I love read... I love kind of recontextualizing just board game rules in sort of just a, a non-board game. It just doesn't make sense half the time. It's really fun to look in there and just see... Well, is what, is what I'm saying actually words, or am I just spilling things out of my mouth? It's kind of fun to take a take a look at it, I think. There's
1: nothing better than trying to do a teach of a complex game to a bunch of people that never played it, and you hear yourself saying stuff like that. Okay, you're going <laughs> to need to move to the Anne Boleyn space, and then you get a cold sweat and you realize this is a weird way to spend an afternoon. This is a strange, <laughs> this is a strange hobby that we've gotten ourselves into. Uh, I like this new segment. I'm hereby dubbing it Rulebook Randomness.
0: Rule book randomness is here to stay. We will definitely bring it back in the future. And I'm excited. I'm excited. And if our listeners do find any that they think is particularly interesting, please do share it with us. We would love to see and maybe even feature it in an episode as well.
1: I'm trying to lock down the uh, Instagram handle at sickly boy right now. Hold on.
0: All right. So we are going to go ahead and move on to our main discussion, the board game renaissance. I'm very excited for that. We will be back in just a moment. Alright, and
1: welcome back to the Dice Pirates, where we're going to be diving into our main topic, which today is uh, taking a look at the renaissance of board games. What do we mean by that? Well, uh, if you've been following the board game hobby for the past decade or so, you know that board games are bigger more popular than ever before uh they've moved from uh kind of a fringe small hobby uh an esoteric hobby to like bordering on the mainstream in a a rapid amount of time and it's fascinating to chart uh the trajectory of this with milestone games like settlers of Catan, kind of and carcassonne kind of blowing the hobby up to new levels at the in the early uh aughts and late 90s and uh and then leading us to massive hits of today like Wingspan and Pandemic Legacy and other you know, best-selling games and Gloomhaven and others. So we thought we'd just kind of do our best to kind of walk through this process of what has brought us to uh, this explosion in games popularity. And Ian has done a yeoman's job over the past month or so exploring this topic. He's been our lead researcher on this. And so I'm gonna to toss it uh, over to Ian now to kind of give us some schooling on what he's learned. Uh, Ian, I know that a lot of this really started with how games started to change uh, in the 90s, right? I mean, we started seeing some big moves and some big developments in board games.
0: Yeah, the 90s is really kind of when things took off and you really started to see kind of a change sort of in the way that board games were made and the way that people interacted with them. And you sort of saw this mixing of different styles. But to really understand that i think you have to go way back actually we have to go back to the 50s and 60s Mm. we're going to talk a lot about sort of the euro versus american style of games the american style of games obviously you know being fundamentally based in america you know the north america a lot of the games that we played growing up and then the euro games i'm going to focus mostly on germany because germany tends to be where a lot of this sort of epicenter of gaming happens sort of most of the the major designers came out of germany originally and of course, you have you know awards and, and prizes that they pioneered. So we're going to focus on sort of those two. I kind of want to so I want to kind of break down what we mean by the different styles of these games, what people traditionally think of. So when you talk about American games, especially before the '90s, you kind of had three distinct style of styles of games. You had D and D, obviously, which you know is a game in and of itself. That's not really in copy tabletop gaming. We've covered that before, and I think we could set that aside for this purpose of this discussion. There are also war games. You have your classics like Diplomacy, Risk, a lot of the Avalon Hill games like Dune, Starfleet Battles. Obviously, miniature games will fall into that as well, like Warhammer, games like that. And then you also had family games, you know, like your Mouse Traps, your Don't Break the Ice, Perfection, games like this. What are your guys' like, reminitions? Like, what do you remember, you know, I know you guys are both, you know... 100 200 years old what do you guys remember you know from this period of growing up and the games that you played as a young child like like almost everybody
1: i grew up with the family games primarily like you know monopoly uh mousetrap trouble is there it, honestly can i pause really quickly and just say I, I don't know that even modern board gaming has given us anything as tactically satisfying as the pop matic bubble on a game of trouble just don't and
2: the dice, like plumps up. You can buy a full D and D, like seven piece set in a popematic D twenty, D ten percentile. I've um, al- they're they're a little bit expensive for the joke because that's you pull that out one time and you set it on the table and then you roll initiative and then you immediately put it away
1: uh no you pull it out and you use it for all of your roles because it's amazing okay (laughs) sorry so you know so i grew up uh playing a lot of the family games like everyone else did but i had these uh you know i'm I'm a little bit older than you guys uh by a decade a few decades or so and uh, i had some early brushes uh in my life with this kind of emerging uh, board game renaissance to come. I remember playing some hobby board games as a young wee lad that were sort of at the forefront of this. Uh, There was a board game uh, that you need to Google called the Omega Virus that Milton Bradley put out in the uh, mid-90s that is this uh, talking robot thing where you're trying to like move your little spaceman through the station and shut down a virus from taking it over. It's incredible. It's one of the coolest like things you could have ever gotten as a kid. But even then you sort of saw, like, that sense of, like, board games being more than just rolling dice or moving down a path. I had some kind of early brushes with, like, Hero Quest, which I've talked about on the show, and just how that completely changed your mind and probably turned me into a fantasy nerd. So, yeah, I mean, but, but like, most people just played a lot of really bad games of Monopoly, really endless games of Clue and, and Life, and just... Really had no idea how big a part of my life board games would become when you're thinking back on those
0: early years. Yeah, so something I kind of want to pick up, like that you were talking about, is this idea that a lot of American games tended to be very roll to move. You roll your dice, you move your mice. Mm -hmm. You know, it's very rooted in that idea. Shoots and ladders, Candyland. You know, some of these very basic games, you just move forward. They tended to be a lot more competitive. You're really fighting each other. Obviously, some of them were military-focused. You had a lot of war games talking about, you know, American games. And then something that American games did that you didn't see as much in other games is that they allowed eliminating other players. You could actually remove people from the game, something that Monopoly and Risk did very famously and caused many, many fights and has caused many games not to play board games ever again because of the fights that have ensued. It's one of those things that you see sort of a very defined style. I want to shift over to sort of the Euro type of gaming. And this this is something that in general has been more focused on economy driven gameplay there's more dynamic mechanics in play with often like a simpler theme. It's not, the theme is not it is more of a, a, a veneer that you see over top of it with the mechanics really shining. You know, there's engagement of the players. There's not as much take that. And so you, you try to keep everybody involved. You don't really see elimination between different players. I think that's something to, to really look at. I, like I mentioned, you know, I'm going to talk about german games in, in, in this second because that's really where you see saw a lot of this development you see a lot of the design philosophy coming from them and i mean you know following world war ii they were a culture that was extremely conflict diverse militarism was not something that they liked to address at all and you see that in their aversion towards games it, it, an interesting fact that i discovered while i was researching this is that risk was actually almost banned in the 80s when the parker brothers introduced really? it to germany yeah, they actually, there were uh, several different groups that actually protested the inclusion of this game, and it was actually put on a list of games that could potentially incite youth towards violence before the Parker Brothers sued to have it removed, and they did eventually win. But just the fact that you see these groups actually taking such a firm stance against a game like Risk is a very illustrative, I, I believe, of sort of their approach towards games in general. That's really fascinating,
1: I mean, one, they should have banned wrist because it sucks, and uh board game design w- would be much better would have advanced faster if it hadn't been for risk no uh no, I'm just kidding sort of uh classic risk does suck uh but uh okay, I have two thoughts on this. One is uh, it just occurred to me in the moment uh because of the conversation we just had about prison architect. It's really interesting to think that people have been critical of games introducing real-world themes for as often as that has been going on. I mean, this idea... Think about when Risk was coming out and the fact that we were coming off of an actual world war with cannons and people. had great devastation marching across Europe and the world. uh, And then seeing that, like, scaled down to this abstracted state and then sold as a thing to kids, that would have been shocking. You know, that would have been as, as shocking to their eyes as us seeing a game trivializing the complexities and, and social dynamics of, a, of the prison system. So it is sort of like funny to me when people act like this is some kind of new thing, this like questioning of games and what's appropriate for a game to do. Uh, it's been going on as long as games have been around. And uh, that's that's one reaction I have to that. The other is it's uh, it's fascinating to me the implications of how this kind of opposition to conflict In fighting in games uh, radically transformed game design in Europe as opposed to America. You know, know, American games just got more and more into dice and fighting and conflict. And European games were like, let's make some games about sheep, man. Let's make some games about uh, making cheese, you know,
2: growing hops. The hardships of early 16th century farm life.
0: And it worked. It really did work. I mean, these games connected with people in, in more of a way than a lot of other groups did. So I think, you know, to kind of move on, what started this renaissance, really? You know, we already talked about the differences that these cultures had. But you also kind of look at the success of it. I mean, America didn't really have a board gaming scene as it was. It was something that you may bought. you might buy Risk. You had kid games, you know, Perfection, Twister, Ants in Your Pants. But these were not games that, like, people connected over so much. There wasn't like a board gaming scene. Germany began very early on to have a robust board gaming scene. You see, you know, designers that we still know today. Reiner Knizia, Richard Ulrich, Uwe Rosenberg. These guys all originated in Germany as well. These were all German designers. And in 1978, the Spiel des Jahres Awards were created. This is the most prestigious of awards that a board game can get, and it still is to this day. The first award given was actually for Hare and Tortoise in 1979. But then you had, of course, other classics like Rummy Cube, Scotland Yard, Bluff, or as we know it here, Liar's Dice. So you saw pretty early on, you know, you saw some of these very classic games that we still enjoy today that were coming out of Germany and that were being awarded there. You know, of course, in any discussion where we're going to be talking about the renaissance of board games, we have to talk about Settlers of Catan. Before we dive into this... What do you guys think about Settlers Settlers of Catan? What's your experience been with that game? Did you play it early on, or when did you first start playing that game?
2: I did not play Settlers until I had been playing modern board games for for years and years. I think that for a lot of people, it's kind of like the first modern game that they play. And in the same way that you still think that Gummy Bears holds up as a cartoon. They think that settlers of Catan holds up as a board game. Uh, and I would firmly disagree. I think it is trash garbage. It is far too luck dependent. Uh, there's some hardcore first player advantage when it comes to the setup of the board. I will play it if that's what everyone else is playing, but I will not enjoy it. And that's my it's my spicy take for this episode.
0: I think you're a little harsh on this, and I will respond to that in a minute. But, of course, and I think Matt has something he wants to say.
1: I think I'll probably, I, I'm going to predict that I'm going to land somewhere between uh, the two of you on Catan. But I had a similar experience uh, as Aaron. I didn't play Catan until after I'd played a lot of other hobby board games. I jumped into the hobby with much heavier stuff. And, yeah, uh, the first time I ever played Catan, I believe, it was with you, actually. Oh, wow. Maybe not with maybe it was the second time, but in an early time I played it, it was with you, uh, because it had just I, it just escaped me, you know, like I, it was yeah. not on my radar, although I knew what it was. Um, and playing it after playing like other games that were came after it is a little bit like when you go back and watch an old like Buster Keaton movie, and you're like, I understand that these were revolutionary and, and shaped modern cinema. But also, this, this feels like this doesn't feel like it's speaking to me. Uh, that but was the my train sort
2: of, coming at the camera is not as impressive
1: as it was. Yeah, you know, I will say this though: after having played it a few other times, uh, I've I've come to appreciate its charms and realized its value as like bringing people to the ga- to the table that would never play Terra Mystica or some other insanity like that we play in the hobby scene. You know, then they're not going to sit down and play Dune with us or some kind of craziness, but like, okay, I've heard of Catan. Catan makes sense. There's dice, I get this. You know, like it feels it 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 does smartly bridge the gap between casual and heavy in a way that it does make it 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 really has a place. And I've come to enjoy it a lot more the more I've played it and appreciate the fact that it has a little bit more complexity. I still think its biggest shortcoming are those dice, man. Like, you can just get hosed and just not have the luck, and you just can't win.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's definitely some archaicness, a little bit, that you could look at to the design of the game. I assume, I imagine that most people have played Settlers of Catan, you know. Like, the dice, you know what's going to roll most of the time. But yes, the dice can be rough. But I think it's important to look at Catan more as a trading game than anything else. It's less of a game that focuses on the dice, because you're never going to be able to build the empire by yourself. You have to be focused on the trading and what you can get out of other people. But of course, yeah, it does rely on dice rolls. But I think this illustrates a good point that I have, which is that I I think what we've seen in the renaissance of board games, and one of the biggest strengths that games have now, is that we've seen this marriage of the American-style and the European style. We've seen more dice included with games that have very euro style, very eurocentric like mechanics, games that are kind of focused around economics. You've also seen a lot of narrative that has been thrown into games that has really tied a lot of disparate mechanics together. And I think when you look at Catan, you can see a lot of these things as well. It took a nice solid concept and gave people a reason for what they were doing and you know, building a, a new colony but also introduced just enough, you know, easiness, that, like, just enough simpleness to it that people could really get into it and connect to what they were doing, but also not be overwhelmed by complex mechanics. Interestingly enough, the designer of Settlers of Catan actually was originally, he was born in America and he actually moved to Germany because he was involved in the American board gaming scene as it was. He actually did kind of self-publish a couple games that he would send off to people. He decided to move to Germany actually for for various reasons, but one of the reasons is he did want to get more involved in the larger scene there. And of course, you know, we've seen the results of that. It's important to remember that Catan is kind of a focus point and we look at that a lot and that did kind of kick things off, but we really didn't feel a lot of the impact until really 2000 and later, because it took a little bit of time for people to realize the effect that that game had. I mean, you still had a game like um, Munchkin that came out. Very American style game. I mean, you know, very luck-based. It's really just like you're playing less of a game and you're just sort of watching the chaos ensue.
1: Like Munchkin's really the perfect representation of the phrase Ameritrash. I feel like that word's kind of fallen out of favor to talk about games in the American tradition because it's a little pejorative. But, you know, it... it It came about because of games like Munchkin, which, you know, are very love it or hate it, right? Like it is, it's highly thematic, it's uh, juvenile on its humor, it's extremely conflict-oriented, you are out to screw over your other players, it's fighty, the entire game is kicking down doors and killing, and it is random. It's literally everything that an Ameritrash game is, conflict-oriented, random, thematic, and all of that just in one perfect realization so i think you know it's good to bring up munchkin in this context about the development of games because it's so maligned by hobbyists now and people don't like to play munchkin or they like to act like they don't like to play munchkin but munchkin it's, sold. it's a
2: solid half hour of fun jam-packed into 90 minutes it
1: is i think you have to go into it with the right mindset munchkin is also a game a formative uh, board game that i came to late and uh had a good time with it actually it uh my one of my favorite things that's happened in our entire history of gaming was a game of munchkin that ended uh on a completely absurd card that basically allowed a player to just skip ahead and win and it specifically said on the card and if this card uh uh lets you win you know say nah nah nah," to the other players it was hilarious i mean it just when munchkin works it works but it can also be like brutal (laughs)
0: Oh, yeah. No, that game is, you know, it can be hit or miss depending on what you're expecting and, of course, you know, the randomness. But I do like sort of you pointing that out it's very American in its style because it points out that you still had these games that were very popular at that time. Of course, you know, Aaron, I know you mentioned Carcassonne. That's a game that came out in 2000, really sort of popularized the the worker placement approach. You may you, you guys can't see it. He's given a big thumbs down. I want to really push back on that, Aaron carcassonne still holds up today it's an amazing game it is a tried and true of the worker placement and you know tableau building sort of scheme i think you're 100 percent wrong in writing it off the game has a massive depth of strategy you can be good at the game you can absolutely especially if you tweak it a little bit i think the game holds up to this day
2: oh so so the game is good if you fix it because that's what i just heard you say (laughs) <laughs> that you have to fix it to make the game good, which feels like not a good game. No, uh, I will say, in in fairness in fairness to Carcassonne, uh, don't at me, uh, not that you could. I don't put my social media handles in this podcast. I will say, in in fairness to Carcassonne, the first time I played it was with somebody who had, I don't know, five or six expansions, and was too lazy to separate them. So oh. it was... Uh, uh uh it was a slog to be sure
0: Carcassonne does suffer from too many expansions i i think that there are a couple ones that really enhance the experience but you do see a lot of bloat in the later ones just adding mechanics for no reason just making the game more complicated and making it take longer i will agree i think the more expansions you add the less you're going to enjoy the game but moving on of course you did have around this time puerto rico actually came out i i one, I don't want to spend too long on this one, but I think it's notable to point out this is, this is one of the heaviest games that actually garnered attention until uh, about 10 years later when you started seeing games like, you know, Terraforming Mars and, and games like that. So it, it's notable that this game came out quite early for its time, I think. And a lot of people do still really enjoy this game.
1: Yeah, this is on sort of my, like, I don't want to say bucket list. I think I'd be fine not playing it, but it's on my list of games I want to catch up with. I've never uh, played Puerto Rico, but I know enough about it to know the innovations that it brought to the space and uh i think even though now it would probably get some pushback on its colonialism theme and not being as quite as nuanced in the way it did it but the way it took those like engine building mechanics and applied them to an economic setting on a bigger scale and with more complex mechanics yeah this was a really uh watershed i think sort of moment in games getting Uh, more complex and more interesting in the types of things that they were trying to do
0: so the next game that i want to point out came out in 2004 and it is ticket to ride something that i'm sure a lot of people have also played and this sort of finishes off what some people call like the holy trinity of sort of early board games you have Catan, Carcassonne, and ticket to ride three games that are fairly easy to get into you can understand them pretty simply and Honestly, when you're talking about like, you know, games that most people have played, if you're talking to somebody who plays like a, a decent amount of games, those are games that most people have played. I think those ge- those are pretty standard games and they all of them really sort of brought new things to the table. And so these games really paved the way for the games that followed them. When you look at the attention that board games were getting at this point, before this, you know, like when you're talking about these previous games, the average reviews that a board game would get we're probably between five to ten thousand. After Ticket to Ride comes out, you see this skyrocket to board games that come out are routinely getting 20,000 more reviews. And while that may not be the best metric, it just points to how many people are playing game and are interested in actually going to review it afterwards. It does speak to how many people are get, becoming invested in this idea. You have games such as Power Grid that are coming out. you get more popular medium-weight games. You get a game like Turnin' Taxis, kind of the uh, sort of predecessor to like the brass style. And Agricola, of course, still one of the more popular, you know, worker placement, you know, tableau building games, a very, very solid game in its own right. So you really see this sort of ramping up of these popular games that we see. The next spike I want to kind of focus on is in 2008, when you get three huge games. You get Pandemic, Dominion, and Dixit all in the same year and it, understandably so after this you see a massive surge in sort of the popularity of games pandemic of course becoming one of the most popular games ever being followed up by numerous sequels being one of the best legacy games to come out dominion really kickstarting our modern day you know card building the deck building genre and then digs it, you know an incredibly popular party game that people still enjoy that actually does kind of bridge the gap into being a game so when you look at this year and you look at kind of what came before you can really see the progression of games as you move forward
2: and dominion i mean it you'd be hard pressed to point to a game that has been more influential that has had a greater impact i mean obviously every every game can trace its you know mechanical origins back to something but dominion showing up and inventing deck building that has been spun off in so many different ways and re-implemented by so many different games uh i mean dominion not only did it have a huge impact on just board games moving forward there are hundreds if not thousands if not tens of thousands of games that can trace all the way back to this one in particular and it's a game that like is still in print you can still go buy it people still play it it's still popular as far as i know they're still putting out expansions for it like for a game to be that early that monumental that successful and it's still around is just absolutely crazy to me as you can tell i do enjoy deck builders
1: Deck, yeah, Dominion's huge. That's actually an insane triple header that you just listed off. And it shows you, I think as you're working through this narrative of the board game renaissance, this is a fascinating moment because these are three games that are all doing three distinct things that you've never seen before. And so now the creativity behind game designers, the sense of innovation in this space is like really ramping up. Uh, like, well, Obviously, like Aaron just said, Dominion invented deck building, a, a genre unto itself that remains tremendously popular. Pandemic, uh, I don't know if you, you can't quite say that it invented the cooperative game, but the mechanics, the way it dealt with like an escalating threat system, an escalating and expanding threat system, and now you have to collaborate and share information to try to defeat it. How many other games now from uh, something like Dead of Winter to Spirit Island, all kind of uh, have their DNA from Pandemic. And then Dixit, this crazy uh, interpretive picture thing. Nothing like Dixit before. It really hard been very few games like it after. All of a sudden now we're not just making standard like games about economies and systems. Now we're doing games that tell stories and have totally new mechanics and uh this is an important year and i think it just shows you i think you sort of can't understate how creativity and innovation in board games led to the renaissance people just stopped making those bog standard board games and they started doing exciting
2: new stuff for sure pandemic was was definitely one of the first games one of the first of of this popular you know board game that told a story just by you playing it there, obviously there were tabletop role-playing games, there were war games where the, there was this emergent story that happened where you would be recounting it to other friends who were familiar with the game later. But Pandemic was definitely one of the first games that had that same draw of it. It was half the fun was playing the game, the other half was telling your friends, dude, you don't even know. Like, we were just about, we almost had North America locked down and then Atlanta just exploded. And then that spread out, and then that spread out. We were down by three. It got wild. And it it was, you know, I, I think it's, that's definitely a huge part of its success, is that it really encouraged that, that narrative.
1: Games that create moments uh, around the table that you talk about for years to come are the games that are going to make you a lifelong board game fan. And Pandemic is one of those games.
0: It really is. I think that's something that I want to focus on a little bit before we move on and kind of talk about these X-Games, because, you know, yeah, we're rattling off a lot of games, we're talking about a lot here, but I really kind of want to put this in perspective, like we've been talking about, you know, this renaissance, just this idea of, the progression of games you know the uh, artistry the creativity of these games where we're going but also the response that people are having to these games you can put out games that are also a little bit different and games that have this idea because the way has been paved by these games that came before you had games that were able to break in and say hey there's more than just break the ice and risk there's more than monopoly out there you can play a game that's a little bit interesting and everybody can still enjoy you can turn family game night into something more than just a a grind into each other with eventual arguments at the end. It it can be more than that. And so I think that's really what we see as we move forward and as these next games come out, is you see people, you know, standing on the shoulders of these giants and running with it and saying, okay, well, you know, you like this, let's try a new party game now. Let's try a new minis game. Let's try something completely, let's just do something completely different. And so that's where I want to move into the next, not a a specific year, but a series of years. I want to talk about, you know, 2009 through 2014. So many games came out that we still play. You had Small World, Seven Wonders, King of Tokyo, Love Letter, Sushi Go, Cards Against Humanity, Splendor. These games came out within five years of each other. We still talk about all of these games today, you know, games like Sushi Go, a great party game, also drafting cards, you know, moving things around the table. Small World, Seven Wonders, still some great games, you know, great games to play around the table. You know, a little bit light Complexity, easy to get into, King of Tokyo, still a fantastic mini game. So much, so many different things that you see coming out from the board gaming space that really changed the way we looked at games.
1: Of the list that you just said, I think the only game on there that I wish I'd never, that had never come out was Cards Against Humanity. Although, if we, if we hadn't gotten Cards Against Humanity, we never would have gotten Crabs Against Humidity.
2: And so what would we do without that game? Cards Against Humanity, I think, is a, a poorly maligned... If If you are friends with the sort of people who that's the only game that they play, and they play it for five hours every time you hang out with them... I mean, any game you would be tired of. If you played Blood Rage for five hours every single week, eventually you would bad talk... Blood Rage, it's just the Cards Against Humanity, part of its brilliance is it has an extremely low barrier for entry. You can, Your mom can walk up to the table, and in a couple minutes, she understands what's going on. You're going to have to explain a lot of concepts to her that you're not going to be a fan of having to explain to your mom. But, it's... I don't think it's a great game. I don't want anyone to think that I'm sitting here as a Cards Against Humanity apologist. I just think it gets... A bad rap for the wrong reasons sometimes.
1: It's, you, you know, you raise a good point. I guess I can't, at the start of the show, sing the praises of Soro in an ode to, like, simple games and then, like, crap completely on Cards Against Humanity. But I can crap a little bit on it. It's not great. Oh, absolutely. But still, absolutely. What still, what an incredible, like, all killer, uh, no filler run of games you just listed. You know, Splendor and uh, Love Letter and Sushi Go. It, it just feel like the dam kind of bursts at some point in like 2008-2009 and all of a sudden all this creativity and innovation is happening and now like playing a board game at a party is all of a sudden like a really cool thing to do uh which would have been like bananas like a decade earlier to like invite grown people over to your house and say all right I've got this game uh it involves uh the economics of like 19th century Scotland but trust me it's really fun. You know, like, or something crazy. But, like, you know, the, the dam has, like, burst and people are, are, are wanting to do something different around the table with friends. Something that is in the back of my mind that I think is all over the idea of the board game renaissance is it's happening almost simultaneous to the explosion in popularity of social media. This is probably bigger And this isn't on the the carefully planned uh, (laughs) outlaw that you uh, made, Ian. But I just want to kind of put it out there that it's fascinating to me that when you said like 2008, 2009 was that big year with those and, and then on into 2014. Well, that's also about the time that Twitter launched in 2019. And so social media is happening. And I'm just wondering if there's some kind of parallel between our lives getting increasingly digitally connected and ephemeral and then people wanting to do something physical and look people in the eye. I Somebody smarter than me could probably write an interesting uh, sociological experiment with that. But I really do think that there's an interesting parallel that at a time when our lives are getting increasingly fast-paced and digital – we are craving experiences where you look each other in the eye and play with cardboard and plastic again.
0: I'm actually really glad you brought that up, because that is something I wanted to address, is just that, you know, as we talk about the board game renaissance, we think a lot about these, these larger games, you know, your wingspans, your gloom havens, games that are, you know, heavy and big and have a big presence on the table. But one of the parts that we don't often look at is the party games and the games that really connected people, and those are often the games that get the most attention. So... In, in 2015, you had Codenames and Exploding Kittens. Exploding Kittens, of course, being, you know, kind of the beginning of the Kickstarter era of board games. Massive success. But also, Codenames has more reviews than any other game released in the last 10 years. Still, to this day, you go look on, on BGG, it has more reviews than any game released in the last 10 years. Codenames is really good. Like,
1: I, for, I sleep on on Code Names sometimes. I forget how freaking fun that game is. But I've never had a bad time playing Codenames. It's just great. It's such a simple mechanic. It's it's that, that thing again of like easy to learn, hard to master. Uh, you can teach 20 people how to play it in, you know, five minutes and have a great time. To
2: roll back just a little bit, tie together several points, several things that have come up this episode. Uh, Matt, going back to your point about the impact and importance of social media. One of the things that got me into tabletop board gaming, and I know a lot, a lot of other people was the YouTube show hosted by Will Wheaton, Tabletop, uh, which in its first season, I mean, the first episode was Small World, second episode, Settlers of Catan, the third episode featured Suro. The impact of that show when Suro was featured on Tabletop the demand to go out and buy that game was so high that the publisher exhausted all of its stock reserves, and the game was actually temporarily... You couldn't buy it in Europe because they had to shift all of their production into meeting demand in the U.S. Wow. So, like, absolutely, social media... I mean, it all it takes is a person you know from TV... Being like, hey, this is really fun. And, I mean, I remember when tabletop was was a thing that was still happening. Like, you better hope that you didn't really love whatever game they did on the episode that came out today. Because you can't buy it for two weeks. It's just, it's gone now immediately and instantaneously.
1: I I loved uh, that show. And it really... I I haven't brought it up on the show, and I'm glad you reminded me of it. I haven't brought that up on the podcast before, but it was actually incredibly formative in me figuring out the games that I wanted to play next. When I first started dabbling in the hobby, it was great to sit down and watch a group of, like, funny, interesting people play the game. And so that's another side of the social media thing that I hadn't thought about. I'm really glad you made that point, Aaron. Is like As much as, you know, there may have been... uh, People like maybe backlashing to the digital culture and wanting to have like IRL experiences. But also social media allowed the stigma that like board games were probably were like a weird way to spend your time to kind of break that down. Uh, Because you could see people having fun playing them and like pictures and videos or shows like tabletop. Like all of a sudden it was like, oh, you know, board games aren't what I thought they were. They're much more interesting. Uh, They're much more silly. They're much more fun. They're much they make for a good time. And so, yeah, I think social media had a huge impact on breaking down the stigmas and just making games seem
0: cool. You know, like you look at Dungeons and Dragons and the success that Critical Role had in bringing that to a lot of people as well. This social media aspect, seeing other people, especially people that you enjoy seeing already playing games, it being common enough that these people are are interested enough because these games are so fascinating to bring that out there and want to share that with other people, you know, the... Well, you know, what we see on Instagram with so many people sharing their games and some of our favorite content creators, it's amazing to, to watch these people and really get a feel for how much they love it and how much they want to share with other people. I want to talk about one more year, and then we kind of move on towards kind of the, the wrap-up section here. But I want to talk about 2016, because I think that's the last big year that we can really talk about. Terraforming Mars and Scythe both came out in 2016. Two incredibly successful games. Scythe, of course, with Stonemaier Games, really kicking that off, you know, another big Kickstarter success. Terraforming Mars is still one of the most popular games out there very medium heavy games that started to go mainstream We've talked a lot about these games before they were either lighter games games that may have been party games This was the first time that the most popular games were actually heavy games games that you could really sink your teeth into And that actually took some time to play and we hadn't seen that before you'd seen games like Puerto Rico and Agricola But it wasn't a staple of the hobby and this is when you saw a shift towards people being willing to jump into those games and, and more people being invested in them as well
1: I mean uh, I definitely think you raise a good point that like all of a sudden the patience and comfort level with complexity has uh, gone way up in, amongst the broader section of gamers I mean there've been heavy games for as long as there' have been games I mean we've talked about it on the former show that like Twilight Imperium is that's an old game I mean they've been publishing that, that for decades and even really heavy euros like Terra Mystica were pretty early in the hobby. But they weren't, but you're right, they weren't necessarily like ubiquitous the way Terraforming Mars and Scythe were. Uh, and now all of a sudden, even like a designer like Vital Lacerda, who is putting out these brain meltingly complex games, is kind of a rock star and very popular right now. It sort of makes sense to me that we would get to this point because people who are, have been in the hobby have been playing games now for 10 years and they're just kind of craving something. <laughs> stronger they're craving a stronger fix so they're just getting like more and more complex and interesting games to the table
0: there's something that Quentin Smith one of the creators of Shut Up and Sit Down said in an interview back in 2013 that I think is is very key in this moment here is just he mentioned in a response to a question that asked him why are board game sales going up why are people starting to buy these and he mentioned that he said well people are buying more games because games are getting better and i think that's I think that's true i think that's 100 percent true you see with people sharing these games of course you always had good games but you see more good games and i think that's why i wanted to stop around 2016 with terraforming mars and scythe because one of the things you see as you move on from here is actually the average number of reviews for games in actually starts to dip a little bit and i think one of the reasons is because when you look back at a lot of these years you would often have one or two games that would dominate the year. You had games that were set they games that stood alone, games that really defined the year that they were in. You know, obviously Ticket to Ride, you know, the games that we've talked about. Pandemic, Dominion, Carcassonne. These games were huge. These games were the only game that really stood head and shoulders above the rest. But as you move on, of course there are amazing games that have come out. Roots, Wingspan, Azul, Gloomhaven. And these games deserve, you know, the praise that they have gotten. But you do see that there are just more quality games. And even the games that are not these good games are still good games. And so it's less easy to say, this is the game you need to buy. And more of which of these games do I buy? And so I think we've kind of maybe moved on, you know, past this, you know, you know, renaissance of like some games have paved the way to now. There are just so many options. And you've seen family board game collections grow from just Monopoly Life and Risk. So, I guess in sort of wrapping this up, tying this all up with a bow. Are we still in a renaissance or have we kind of moved on into a golden age of board games? What do you guys think?
2: I I know that Matt has made the point several times that, you know, one day the bubble's going to burst here soon. You know, that our our last episode was about Kickstarter and when is that, when is that going to break bad? But I mean, the fact is board gaming market is growing by leaps and bounds year over year to the point where it's not just it's it's not just your store that sells magic cards and comic books you can go to target and walmart and even at least in my own personal experience kroger of all places my local kroger has copies of the quest for el dorado on the shelf which is just hog wild
0: that's a grocery store for those of you people who don't might not know what a Kroger is who who don't don't live in that very specific part of the country
2: <laughs> for people who don't live in the southeast of the United States I yeah I guess I should apologize it's a grocery store that uh you know this this it's, it's an expanded store they have a lot of other types of of household goods but like you can go there and get milk and cereal and also a very highly rated recently released euro game because there's enough of a market there that it makes sense for them as a business decision to carry and to sell this stuff on their shelf because there's, it sells. The market is, is growing exponentially all the time. It it's really cool to be into something kind of at the, I I would say we're even still at kind of the early stages because there are still people who, you know, even though I can go to target and I can buy, like, the D&D starter set or something like Terraforming Mars, Ares Expedition. There are still people who don't know what it is. It's not quite... It is It is an art form it's a pastime. It's not baseball. It's not movies. There's still people who don't know what it is. I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's exciting times either way, to be sure.
1: I have mixed feelings to that question. Are we still the Renaissance? Are we in danger of some kind of collapse or change in it? And I'll look at it in two ways. On one hand, I can see a strong uh, support for everything that Aaron said. In particular, something that sticks out in my mind is how solo board gaming exploded 2020. And so now you have even this like new layer of interest and excitement around games that didn't even, I won't say didn't exist before, but like was very niche and is becoming like an almost integral part of the hobby the solo play experience, it just shows you that the hobby is still innovating, still finding new ways to attract fans. And the social media scene of interconnectedness and community around board games is still so popular, especially on Instagram and YouTube. And so uh, on the one hand, it's, I, I, it is very plausible to me that like we haven't even seen like the peak yet of how big board games are going to be. There's also a part of me, because I'm an old head and I've seen it before, that this sort of makes me feel like the way where comic books were in the 90s when uh, there were comic book stores opening up everywhere all across the country. Even in like the little small towns in the s- southern U.S. where I grew up, like there were comic book stores and you could buy comic books at like every drugstore and comic book, uh, every drugstore and supermarket. You know, you had these major cultural events like the death of Superman that were like on the news and people were like lining up. And then just almost overnight, the comics industry in the 90s collapsed because it got too big. There was like hokey gimmicks, there was like uh, artificial scarcity and all these things designed that just kind of caused a backlash and the industry collapsed. And really, like people forget that Marvel almost went, like Marvel almost went bankrupt had sold all their properties off. I mean, we could have very easily had DC buy all the Marvel heroes. And, and, uh, and then if it wasn't just for the stroke of luck of them, like having the first blush of like movie success, and then like, now here they are. I, I sort of see, could, could that same thing happen to board games? Like it's, it's really big right now. And you can buy a a top quality board game at your local grocery store, but is that sustainable? I don't know. You know, I think there could be a shift, particularly if like, prices get out of whack or if there's gimmicky things that turn off consumers. Um, I don't know. I think it's too soon to tell like where we're at, but I do think uh, the bottom line is that we're just like really fortunate to have lived through a time when so much innovation and so much excitement happened.
0: It's going to be very interesting to see where things do go. I think one of the biggest changes you're going to see is definitely going to be in how sort of the production side of things changes. I mean, you look at you know, groups like Asmodee and the groups buying Asmodee. I mean, I think that's going to be the biggest change is that companies coming in, when board gaming gets this big, there is always going to be larger groups, larger corporate groups that are going to come in and are going to try and make money off of it. And so how we weather that, I think, will be very emblematic of maybe how the what the future of board games will be. But like you said, regardless of, of what happens, I think one way or another, we've gotten to the point where we consistently see amazing games. We are seeing new designers. We are seeing very varied designers. You know, we've already seen this incredible, you know, blending of different styles and different cultures, and it's given us this amazing renaissance, and I think it's going to be really exciting for us to see what comes next. So that's our episode on the board game renaissance and and really in some ways just kind of the history of the modern tabletop gaming as we know it. We want to thank Aaron once again for being on. It's always good to have you here. We appreciate it. Matt, if people want to reach out to us, where can they get in touch with us?
1: You can find us uh, on Instagram at Dice Pirates. We are there all week long, posting updates on the games we're playing, mini reviews, uh, updates on the Instagram story about what's going on with us. And uh, yeah, we'd love to hear from you and send us a message. We'll talk back to you in real life. I promise we'll even be nice.
0: We can't wait to hear from you. We always love getting in touch with you guys. We're excited to bring some very fun episodes for you, so keep an eye out for those. But until then, thanks for listening, and we will see you next time here on the Dice Pirates.
2: Play more games!